I don't know, that guy needs to get a haircut in that video. Oh, you're right, Caleb. That was. Hey, um, so men's retreats are going to be on that back table out there. And then I just want to remind you also, ladies, we have something specifically for you. We have the women's uh, brunch and simulcast that's going to be, I believe, across the street next Saturday. So if you're interested in that, there's a women's table out back and make sure you are out in the, the foyer. Don't leave without signing up because there are a couple of spots left for that as well. Um, and, and just, again, thank you for those of you who showed up yesterday to the Love Our City Serve Day. It was, it's the first time we've done it in probably about 10 to 15 years uh, where the churches came together and we said, how, how can we specifically love on our city? And the really fun part for me is that when we approached the city about saying, hey, do you do any sort of a serve day and could we join you? They're like, well, we used to. We just never got enough people. And so the church has kind of said, well, we will supply people if you'll come up with things. And, and so we joined with the city. We got to sell Our mayor had her birthday yesterday. We got to sing happy birthday because she spent it with us. Um, we had, we wrote notes, I believe, to all of the city workers. Is that right? We got notes written to all of our city workers. They're going to be receiving those this week. We fed our police officers. We cared for many of the schools around our area that needed some extra help. Uh, we got to demolish things over at the YMCA, and most shockingly, no one got hurt, other than I realize I have pastor hands that don't um, handle, I don't have enough, I don't have, I, I need Byron's hands is really what I need. I mean, I, I can break bricks with his hands, but anyway, we had, and then we had a lot of individuals in our city who had needs. One story I want to share really quickly before I dive in. There's a woman who, whose father passed away a, a couple months ago, and she, uh, moved out here to be with him in the final days of his life. He was a hoarder. When he passed away, she was left with a house full of things. And the hard part in all of this is that she's terminally ill as well. She's in her early 40s and is staring down the specter of her own mortality in a home that is infested with rodents because of the amount of stuff. And so we had people who came in and began to just clean out her home yesterday. And she was in tears just going, I don't understand why you guys are doing this. And we're like, because we love you. You're not alone here. And she felt utterly alone because, again, she'd moved out here, left her whole support system to be for her, here for her father, and now is kind of like going, how do I find support? We got to be support to her yesterday. So that's just one of many stories of what took place. And I'm looking forward. If you have stories, I would ask that you share them with us so that we can share them with other churches as well. Because yesterday was a, a great picture of the fact that there's not multiple churches in Costa Mesa. There's one church. Jesus Christ is the head of it. He gets the glory. It's in his name that we do all of it. And I'm just so grateful that we get to be used by him. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in this morning. Father, I am grateful that because of what you did on the cross, Jesus, we get to be called your sons and your daughters, and we get to be used by you uh, to reflect your love into our community. Would you continue to do so? And we ask today as we look into your scripture and as we um, begin to unpack how can we even trust this and how can we begin to study it uh, in a way that does not misinterpret it, would you guide this conversation, Jesus, in your holy name? Amen. And, and third through fifth graders, really excited that you're here with us today because one of the things I've recognized uh, and wanted to do for about seven years, ever since I came to Lighthouse seven years ago, is I've wanted to have a conversation about how we study scripture. And it's always seemed like, well, you know, we'll get to it at some point. 
and that some point is now. I was actually teaching a class, at, I've been teaching a class at Vanguard, and I've realized as I was talking through it with my students and how important it was for them to learn how to study scripture accurately, that I haven't even had this conversation with my own church family. So today we're having that conversation. This may feel a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, but it's imperative that we kind of understand this because as we've been walking through the series called uh, Beyond Doubt, where we've been looking at many of the theological questions that people, whether they're people outside of the church or even people within the church, carry around and go, man, this, I don't understand it. Time and again, when we try to answer those questions, we ultimately come back to scripture. We come back to God's word as the foundation for our answers. And last week, we looked at the question, well, if, if we keep coming back to this, how can we even trust this, right? And if you were not here last week, that's pretty foundational to um, where we're headed and, and, and any conversation we're at. So if you ha were not here last week, either grab a CD off of the table out in the front of the foyer, or you can go on our website, lighthousecommunity.com, and that and every other message we've done, um, I believe, since we started recording them a long time ago, are up there. So you can, you can find them, you can share them, you can podcast them and all that fun stuff. But here's the thing. Here's the question that flows out of the conversation we had last week. If this really is God's word, if this has been inspired and directed by him, even though it was written by 40 different authors over the course of about 1,500 years, if God's spirit really was behind the writing, the preservation, the compilation, and then ultimately our reading of this, then why on earth do so many people, even within the church, people who love Jesus, why do we come to such disparate conclusions about what it says we're supposed to do, right? Have you ever noticed that? I, I, there was a book I was exposed to during grad school called The Bible Tells Me So that basically goes through the different ways that the Bible has been used to support very conflicting, very contradictory things. The Bible was used during the Civil War to condemn slavery, but it was also used to support slavery. The Bible was used during the women's rights movement to argue for women's rights, but also has been used to keep women in a subservient role. The Bible has been used to make a good case to go for just war, but it's also been used to condemn war altogether. And we begin to kind of wrestle with, well, how have we wound up with such differing perspectives from the same book? And I don't know if you're in college or you're going into college, there's this change in the perception of the Bible. It used to be called the good book. And it didn't matter whether you went to church or not. It was the good book. It had great, at the very least, a great moral theological foundation for how you should live your life. And then it became known just simply as a book, one amongst many that, that share a philosophical worldview. But in the last couple of decades, it's shifted even once again. It's no longer just a book. It's now the bad book that is responsible for so much of the pain and bigotry and hatred. At least it's su supposedly treated as if it is responsible for all the bigotry and hatred that we see in our society. To the point where people are simply saying you shouldn't read it at all. In fact, um, GQ, that very theologically astute magazine for gentlemen, uh, this week... This week actually said that the Bible was one of the 21 books that you simply, or the 21 classics you simply do not need to read. And this was their explanation in it. I found this interesting. Um, and, and the timing of it, fascinating. So I just want to share this with you. They said this. The Holy Bible 
is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live it by it, but who are actually, actually have never read it. Those that have read it know that there are some good parts, but overall it's certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It's repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, which I've never even heard. It simply means judgmental, foolish, and at times ill-intentioned. So this is GQ's explanation for why you don't really need to read the Bible. You might as well just go and read something a little bit more enjoyable. Um, which brings us back to the question. Why? If this is God's inspired word that he breathed into existence through human authors, why has this been used to bring, to, why has this been used as a foundation for people to do such horrific things in his name? And why do we as Christ followers who long to submit ourselves to this book come to differing conclusions about what it says we should do? That's what we want to explore this morning. And here would be my, my thesis for the morning. I think that it has far less to do with the Bible itself as it does with the way we interpret Scripture. And it's imperative that we understand what I mean by interpret. I don't simply mean read the Bible, because we all read, when we read the Bible, our thinking is that we're just reading the words and we understand exactly what it's saying. But the truth of the matter is whenever we read, we also interpret at the same time. And probably the very best book on biblical interpretation that I, I've ever read is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's by um, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. This was probably the best book I read when I was in grad school. One I come back to again and again, and much of what I'm going to share this morning comes out of this book. So if you're interested in continuing this conversation on your own or going a little bit deeper, I highly recommend reading this. But this is something they say right in about the, the second page of their book. They say every reader is at the same time an interpreter. That is that most of us assume as we read that we also understand what we read. We also tend to think that our understanding is the same thing as the Holy Spirit's or human author's intent. In other words, we think that what we read is exactly what they meant for us to read. However, we invariably bring to the text all that we are with all of our experiences, our culture, and prior understandings of the words and ideas, we kind of import these things into our reading. Sometimes, what we bring to the text unintentionally, to be sure, we don't do this on purpose, but unintentionally, it leads us astray, or else it causes us to read all kinds of foreign ideas into the text. So as we read, as we interpret, we are doing so through our own filter, and it, our filter is different for each of us. We're obviously all living in Costa Mesa or around Orange County uh, in, in the year 2018. So we have different, but, but we're reading it through different lenses of our gender. We're reading it through different lenses of our, our educational background. We're reading it through the lens of our family of origin, whether you were raised in a particular theological worldview, and all of that kind of stuff. And by the way, pastors aren't immune to this. Okay, I, I was confronted about two months ago when we were going through uh, a, ser a series on slowing down. I was confronted with one of my own assumptions that I was reading into Scripture. It was during that week that we were talking about how Jesus, after he's baptized by the Father, and the Holy Spirit lands on him, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the solitary place, the, the wilderness where... You know, he is basically tempted by the enemy. And at the time, I'm going, I don't understand why the Spirit would put Jesus into a place of 
of vulnerability where he's weak because he's alone, but, but he does, and then he gets tempted. And I don't understand, does God want to test Jesus before his ministry starts? That was my mindset. I was trying to make sense of it. I couldn't deny what the scripture said. The spirit obviously led him there. I didn't understand why. And what was going on for me is that I was reading into it through the lens, I was reading that passage through the lens of a guy who's been leading life groups and has been encouraging people to get in life groups for over a decade and a half. And during that time, I've taught people it is imperative that we do life with other people, and that's true. It's imperative that we do life on life because when we are alone, when we're isolated, we're vulnerable. And they, we have a, an enemy like a prowling lion that's looking for whom he may devour, and who does a lion go after? He goes after the ones that are isolated. So I'm reading that into the passage going, why would the Spirit isolate Jesus? It made him vulnerable to this temptation. And then a, another pastor who's become a friend of mine pointed out, well, wait a minute. What if G God leading Jesus into the wilderness was not putting him into a position of weakness, but rather into a position of strength? Because as he's there, he's kind of taken him from all of the, the things that were trying to clamor for his attention. All of the crowds who were saying, Jesus, come and heal us. Do what you've done in other places. And God said, hey, let me isolate you for a little bit. And I'm going to spend time with you. And over the course of these 40 days, you're going to become so intimately familiar with my voice that when the enemy comes in and begins to whisper in your ear, did God really say this? Just like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. Not only will you recognize it's not my voice, but you'll also recognize the, the, the ways he's subtly twisting truth toward his ends. And he's tempting you away from me. And so when the, the serpent, when, when, when the enemy shows up, Jesus is able to go, no, I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to prove that I'm his son. I don't need to prove that what he spoke over me at my baptism is true. I know who I am and I know what I'm about, so get away from me. And so the wilderness, that, that time of being alone with God was actually a position of strength, not weakness. And by the way, when I realized that night and I, I begin to read scripture, taking off the lens of you must always be with other people, which is as an extrovert, not that hard, but for introverts is painful sometimes. Um, when you begin to read it with that lens that I'd been reading it through taken off, I began to realize this actually makes far more sense. And... It absolutely jives with what other people, like James, for instance, says that God does not tempt anyone. And so when I was reading this, I'm going, there's this kind of conflict, and I don't get it, but I can't, all of a sudden, it just smooths scripture out, and I realize it really does all make sense and all hold together, and it, it's not a contradiction. Oh. So again, I come back to, we need to be careful not to read our own preconceived ideas into Scripture, and yet it happens often. And so the question becomes, well, how do we avoid doing that? How do we, as Christ followers, honestly interpret God's Word without allowing our own preconceived ideas to send us off down rabbit trails and misreadings all over the place that would ultimately separate us? Well, Here's what I found. When we come to Scripture, whether it be in a life group, whether it be on our own, this is th what we typically do is that we will read it with the question in mind. What, what's the first question we tend to ask when we're reading something? 
What's in it for me? What is this saying to me, right? We don't just say, hey, what does this say? We say, what does this say to me? Which is a very important question to ask. And in fact, it, it, it's, we should be asking that question. Can we throw up the next quote by T.S. Uh, Stewart? It says, the Bible is God's word. It has eternal relevance. Because the Bible is God's word, it has eternal relevance. It speaks to all humankind in every age and in every culture. Because it's God's word, we must listen and obey. Okay, So it does speak to us. Even though it was written in a, a different historical context thousands of years ago, it still speaks to us. But they continue. But because God chose to speak his word through human words in history, every book in the Bible also has a historical particularity. Each document is conditioned by the language, the time, the culture in which it was originally written. Here's what they're getting at. If we want to faithfully interpret scripture, we cannot simply start with the question, what does this mean to me? Because then we're reading it through our filter. We're interpreting it into our context immediately. And in so doing, we can twist scripture to say just about anything we want it to. When we disconnect it from both its literary and its historical context. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Those are two big words, literary context and historical context. So let's take a couple of minutes and unpack them. This is going to feel a little bit technical, but you're going to see just how influential it is in our reading in a couple of minutes. Literary context. We all know that words can have different meanings in any given language. So how do you define a word? You have to do it by the words that are around it, right? Because a single word by itself could have a lot of different interpretations, but when you put it into a sentence and you have the context of that sentence, all of a sudden it begins to have a little bit more meaning. Let's try this out. Can we throw some up there? Let's try the word run, okay? I have a run in my stocking. You, you can't see it, but it's there. I can't get this app to run. Can you run to the store and get some milk? I've got to run off some copies. I need to run off the ice cream I ate last night. <laughs> I, I, I read something that there are 177 different ways we can use the word run in the English language. Again, it comes down to context, right? Let's try another one. How about the word live or live, depending on the context? Where do you live? I once saw Michael Jordan play live. I wish that were true. How do you even live in this mess? No parent has ever said. Walk it off, you'll live. I may have said once or twice. <laughs> Last one, let's try bass or bass, depending on the context. When I grow up, I wanna be like Byron with his Sam Elliott mustache and his deep bass voice. <sighs> Man, we all aspire to that. Pastor Jeff dreams of catching bass. Or I wish I could play the bass like Terry. Right? So what you see in this is that a word doesn't mean a whole lot until you, put, you read it in the context. And if you don't read it in the context, you could take it one of a hundred different ways. But once you read it in the context of a sentence, it begins to have more meaning. And then when you read that sentence in the context of the sentences around it, it actually begins to help flesh out what the author is saying. And here's the problem. Most of the time when we come into contact with scripture, 
anymore because we live in such a technological age. It's through Instagram, it's through Facebook, it's on people's feeds, maybe it's through a devotional you read. One of my very favorite ones even, um, his utmost for his, my, my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers, I love it, and it starts with a verse at the very top, or sometimes it's even just a little part of a verse, and then he has Oswald Chambers' thoughts on it. I love that, but here's the problem. Half the time I read the verse and I have absolutely no idea what's going on. I, I kind of recollect he was having a conversation about something, but I have no idea, A, who's speaking, and B, what was going on. And so I, I read this verse and I completely ripped it out of the context of the whole conversation going on. And then I read somebody else's thoughts. And their thoughts ultimately become the context for which I understand that verse. But there are times, even with my utmost for his highest, where I will go back to the context of the chapter that that verse was in, or even that piece of a verse was in, and I'll read it within the broader conversation, and I'll realize he's really, what he's writing about is good, and it's true, but it's not exactly the same conversation that Paul was having, or John was having, or James was having, or Isaiah was having when they said this. So how do we faithfully read Scripture within its literary context? Well, do just what I just explained, is to go back to where it was, find it in its original context, and then read the larger conversation. This is what a, a full, complete thought in Scripture is what theologians like to call a pericope. That's just a big word for Here's the complete thought. It, the story starts here and it ends here and the verse is in here, so read the whole story or read the whole unit of thought and then you can understand better what that one verse is getting at. Does that make sense? So that's literary context and I just scratched the surface of it, but that's a piece of it. The second question we need to ask is the historical context. This is the who, what, when, where, why, and how. All right? So I'm teaching this class to a bunch of religion majors over at Vanguard, and the first three or four papers I got for them, from them, almost to a person, they were all, whenever they would quote a verse, they would say, the Bible says, and then they would quote whatever verse it was that they were using to support their thing, right? No problem with that. Except does the Bible ever actually say anything? Or does the Bible simply quote other people who say things, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Paul or John? They're the authors who spoke it. And when we say the Bible says, we're talking about this as if it's some monolithic thing, that there is no historical context. It's just this universal um, you know, oracle that throws out a verse here or there to kind of proof text anything. And what they've done when they say the Bible says is you've completely clipped away all the historical context. Things like, who said it? Did Paul say it? Well, who's Paul? Paul was a trained Pharisee who was trying to stomp out the gospel until Jesus got a hold of his heart, completely turned him around, and he became the, this outspoken proponent for the gospel and began to share this first with Jews and when they rebuked or, you know when they kind of rejected the gospel message he would share it with the Gentiles non-Jews and the and the gospel began to make major inroads and much of what Paul writes he's writing to a group of people who were not Jewish to a group of people who didn't have a whole lot of context for this and so he's explaining things that the Jews would have other understood and he's just kind of going hey this is for you too 
And so we have to understand, who's actually writing this? Who's saying this? Is it Jesus saying it? Is it one of the disciples? Is it one of the Pharisees? Is it, is it one of the gospel writers? Is it one of the, the letter writers? Secondly, who are they saying it to? Who's the audience that they're writing to? Is it Jews living in Jerusalem? Or is maybe Jews that have been kind of cast away from the promised land like you see in much of the prophets? Many of the prophets are written specifically to people, Jews, who look at the promised land as their foundation, as the, the proof that God is for them, and suddenly they find themselves separated from the promised land, and they're like, who are we as a people? We've lost our identity. Our identity was in the land, and we've lost the land. Now what? Or is this being written to Gentiles, non-Jews? Each of those things. And then what are the circumstances that prompted them to write this to this particular people? Is it an encouraging thing? Is there something going on that they're trying to address? When you know who's writing, who they're writing it to, the circumstances behind why they're writing it, you begin to have an understanding of why they're having this conversation. Because much of what we read in Scripture, a lot of the theology that we read, is not simply theology for theology's sake. It's actually theology that is being brought to bear on a particular circumstance. So a couple weeks ago, we read 1 Corinthians 15. I took us there because I wanted to talk about whether we could know that Jesus had actually risen from the grave. But what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 15 is there was a group of people in Corinth who were saying, you know, there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul's refuting that, and in order to do that, he has a conversation in which he basically says if Jesus hasn't risen, if the dead don't rise, then Jesus didn't rise, and then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, and he kind of goes through all that. We looked at some pieces of that, but we had to understand it in the broader context of the, the conversation he's having. Does this make sense? Kind of, a little bit. Blank stares. I know this is like drinking from a fire hose. So let me give you a tool that I found to be really helpful. Let's back up for a second. Go ahead and pull out this piece of paper. It's a half sheet that is in your outline. If you don't have one, I think we have a couple more back there. Um, this is a tool that I have stolen from Rick Warren. I find it to be very helpful, and then I've kind of made it my own. I've tweaked it a little bit. This is called the baseball diamond of biblical interpretation. Normally, when we come to, to Scripture, we'll open the Bible, start to read, and we'll, we'll immediately ask the question, what, does this, what is this saying to me? What does this mean to me? If you'll notice on here, what happened there? If you'll notice on here, that's third base. And anybody who's ever played baseball knows you don't go to third base first or you're out. Okay? First base is what, did, what is this actually saying? This means we have to read it in the context of the chapter or the unit of thought that it was written in. You have to understand a verse or a, a paragraph within the context of what's going on around it because that will inform the meaning and the purpose of it. Secondly, you need to ask the question, what did it mean to its original audience? How would they have heard it? How was, it, how was what was said speaking into their particular context of what they were walking through? Because, and this is a really important point that I hope that you won't miss, Scripture cannot mean to us something different than it meant to them. What it meant to them becomes 
kind of the anchor point for our interpretation of Scripture. Now, is that to say that we, some 2,000 years later, can't have a more full appreciation of what the cross was? Because Jesus said some things to his disciples that they didn't get. He said, in this world you'll have trouble, but you can take heart that I have overcome the world. They didn't fully get the ramifications of that, that, the, that even their own deaths wouldn't get the last word because Jesus hadn't died at this point. But we can't interpret that verse to mean something different than what Jesus meant to them. Otherwise, we, we at this point have lost all of our moorings and we can make scripture say anything about any subject that we want. So we need to anchor it to what did it mean to them? Then we, then we can ask third base, now what does it mean to me? In light of what it said to them, what does it mean to me? Now, I've gone a little bit too quickly because in step two, you'll also notice here about halfway through, I said, what is the genre of this passage and how does it affect the way the passage was intended to be read? A genre, I mean, we all know if you go to a, a, a romantic comedy, you're not going to, you know, you're probably not going to get guys too excited about it. And if you have a war movie, you're not going to get girls to be all that excited about it. And I know that's a gross oversimplification and, and ridiculously um, insensitive because we all like different things. Um, but you get the point, right? You're not going to read poetry the same way that you read a science uh, manual, and you're not going to read a science manual the same way that you would read history. You're not going to read uh, nonfiction the same way that you read fiction. You're going to read fiction as a story that has, you know, a purpose. Maybe that purpose is to entertain, or maybe that purpose is to kind of get at um, an idea that they want to kind of get across, but the, the story itself is more the packaging of it. Nonfiction we're going to read as, hey, this, this really happened this way, right? Like, this is the story, and it's real, and so it's grounded in reality. In the same way, when you read scripture, you're reading it through the lens of it's written in a lot of different genres. We have, we have poetry in here. So you don't want to read poetry like narrative, like a story. We have narratives. The gospels are the best example of it. We have letters that are being written to specific people. These are the epistles. The vast majority of, of the New Testament after the four gospels and after Acts, most of the rest of that is letters that are being written to a specific group of people at a specific time. So read it accordingly. Um, we also have this really weird type of genre called apocalyptic literature, which is what Revelation is. And there is nothing like it in our current context. It's, so if you read Revelation literally as if you know, you would, you would basically be saying that Jesus has a double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth and it's like, okay, don't kiss me on the cheek, dude. That's not what it's saying because apocalyptic literature leans heavily into imagery and symbolism. And so to read it as if it is the book of Acts, which is telling more a story, a historical story, you're going to do damage to it. So you have to understand the literary context, the, um, the literary genre that it's written in to understand how the audience would have read it. Does that make sense? I know this is a fire hose. But once you can ground your reading in, here's what it's saying, here's what it would have meant to the original audience... Then we can ask, okay, what is it saying to me in light of what it said to them? And that is our, our anchor point, so that we don't twist Scripture to say whatever we want it to say into whatever circumstance we want it to say. And then after we've asked, what does this say to me here and now, then comes the final question, home base, and that is, okay, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me right now? How do I respond to this? 
what sort of application is there to this? Because God's word, as we read in Hebrews chapter 4, God's word is living and active. It continues to speak to us. It continues to cut to the core of our heart. It continues to expose our preconceived ideas and our, our tendency to go any way that we want. It is a way of kind of bringing God's people back into uh, submission to him. But we have to be willing to read it according to the way he intended it. Now, that was a lot. And I know that it might have been overwhelming. So I'd like for us to practice running the bases with a passage that you may or may not be uh, familiar with. And I have to admit, when I put this together, I, was not a, a, I did not realize that our third through fifth graders were going to be in here. But it is, I think that this is both appropriate and important for you to hear. But this is kind of an adult conversation as well. So I'm trusting that you are going to... Um, if you have questions about this, talk to your mom and dad. And mom and dad, if you have questions about it, come and talk to me. All right? All right, with that, there is a passage that has done horrific damage to husbands' and wives' relationships throughout history. And it really comes down to this verse, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Can we throw it up there? Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. That verse... I'm not, you notice I'm not looking over where my wife is right now. <laughs> that verse has been ripped like a branch off of the tree of Scripture and used as a cudgel to beat women into submission throughout history. And I would love to say that this happened back then and not anymore, but the truth of the matter is about a month ago, I was sitting with a couple who are on the brink of, of just saying, we can't do this anymore. Their, their marriage is in shambles. They are both at their wit's end, and they long to, to figure it out, but there's just so much woundedness in their marriage. They don't go to this church, by the way. I should probably mention that. You don't know them, okay? Otherwise, I would not be using this story. So I'm sitting with them, and I, at one point I say, well, I look to the husband, I say, what, what do you think is going on? And he says, honestly, she just needs to submit to me. And in that moment, he was, point, he was basically using this verse as the foundation for his comment. And in that moment, it was another, yet another body blow to their already wounded marriage. And it was another black eye for the Bible. And so I had a very similar conversation with them that I'm about to have with you. I said, hold on a second. That is a gross oversimplification and, quite honestly, a complete misunderstanding of that passage. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want us to read this within both its literary and historical context. So as you're turning there, let me give you the historical context first. When Paul is writing his words that we've just read... He's writing to a group of people that live in Ephesus, which is a Greek culture that has been influenced by Roman Hellenism, in which the man is the patriarch of the family. The man has all the power in that culture. The man has the power uh, to basically dictate what happens in his home and outside of his home. He has the power of life and death over his wife, over his children, and over his property, of which slaves were considered property in this day and age. It was not something that was outlawed. It was not something that was looked down upon. 
A man could beat or divorce his wife with impunity for any reason he wanted. He could also not only hurt his children without any repercussions, but he could also um, say, I no longer want you. You've disappointed me too much. You're no longer my child. There is, a, there is a long history within the Roman Empire of, of fathers when they saw their children and didn't want to spend the time raising them because they disappointed them in some way, of literally taking the child outside and leaving it outside. That's called exposure. And it is not something we can even stomach or fathom, and yet it was a, it was a regular, acceptable part of this culture. Furthermore, slavery was not only acceptable, but a slave owner could beat and even kill their slave with impunity because they owned that property. They were seen as property and not people. This is the cultural milieu into which Paul is writing. And it's imp- I know that that is harsh and I know it's uncomfortable, but it's the reality of the culture into which this is being written. Make sense? Furthermore, that verse is not the beginning of Paul's thought. If it was... We might say, if we just took that verse as you see it on the board, you might say Paul is absolutely affirming the status quo of that cultural mindset. And you would be completely missing the heart of what Paul is saying. So to get the heart of what Paul is saying, we're going to actually back up, not just to chapter 5, but we're going to actually go to chapter 4 for a moment. Because the pericope, the unit of thought, begins... I mean, the truth of the matter is, if you really want to understand one of these epistles, they're not that long. Read them from beginning to end, just like you would if somebody sent you a letter. You don't read one paragraph of a letter and put it down on your bedstand and go to bed that night, and then the next day read one more paragraph and put it down. Instead, you would read the whole letter, and you would kind of get the flow of thought that builds upon itself. But I at least want to give you some of the building here. So we're going to begin in chapter 4, verse 17. Paul is now speaking to the, after he's kind of said, hey, this is how the, the world around you lives. He says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. These, these non-believers that you, within which you live in proximity. Don't live like they do in the futility of their thinking because they're darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They don't listen They don't submit, and they have no interest in doing so. Skip down to chapter 5, verse 8. He continues this conversation again. Just for time's sake, I'm kind of rushing through this. I want you to get some of the the, the main points of the thread of his thought. He goes in verse 8. He says, for you were once darkness. You were a lot like them. But now you are the light. And now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. So have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them through your very living in proximity to them. We're going to jump down to verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The, the world in which you find yourself and the culture in which you find yourself rails against God and what he longs for, and you get to live as children of the light in that. Are you following his train of thought here? Because now he points his eyes to Christian living, to the household And he says, let me explain to you what this looks like to live as children of light here. 
Now, we typically, I'm not sure how your Bibles have it, but we typically see chapter 21 and chapter 22 either separated with, by a, a kind of section break, or at least in my Bible, I have a paragraph break, which is confusing to me because that's actually one sentence. And so in putting a paragraph break there, you're saying, here's one unit of thought, and then in verse 22, here's another unit of thought. And that does damage to our understanding of what Paul is saying here. Because his words to Christian households does not begin with wives submit to your husbands. It actually begins one verse before that in verse 21 when he says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he continues on. Wives submit to your husbands. But here, here's something I need you to hear first. In the original Greek, the word submit is not found anywhere in verse 22. It's actually borrowed from verse 21 which means that you can't really kind of break this up as a paragraph, which is why I was like, come on, don't do this. At least now, in, in my Bible, they don't have a section break in between the two like they used to. And, but here's how it should read. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, to your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. So as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, who is he speaking to in that particular instance? Huh? I am hearing nothing. I'm hearing... <laughs> Come on. Who is he talking to in that particular instance? He's talking to wives, right? Ironically, it's always husbands that are the ones who point out, hey, wives, submit to your husbands, right? He's not talking to you, so stop it. But also notice... When he says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, who's he talking to? Everybody. The whole Christian household, whether it's husbands, wives, children, or, or, or the, 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 the servants and slaves that live within the household. He's talking to everybody. And then he uses as an example, wives to your husbands is under the Lord. This is not revolutionary. This is not audacious. This is expected when he says, wives, submit to your husbands is under the Lord. That would not have been a blip on their radar. In many ways, we could even argue that he is simply fleshing out, giving him an example of what this looks like. Just in the same way that wives submit to their husbands, that's how we should submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. But here's what is revolutionary, and I would suggest radically progressive is that he continues in this line of thought now to focus on husbands. So husbands, if you want to know and you want to quote this, here's the part that actually pertains to you, so pay attention. He then says, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He died for us. So you want to know how to submit yourself out of reverence to Christ? Be self-sacrificial. Be willing to bend a knee. I, I do not particularly like this passage because I honestly think it speaks more powerfully to me than it does to my wife. Because in my household, what I recognize is that if we're in a fight, I can't just say, woman, submit, which is not a good idea. <laughs> just for like self-preservation's sake. 
I can't do it. Instead, my responsibility as the head of my household, as the, as the team captain, if you will, is I get to model through my example the kind of posture and humility and submission that I long to see throughout my family. So that means that when we're in a fight, my responsibility is to be the first to apologize, to be the first to lay down my right to be right and to move towards my wife, to be the first to say, rather than just, I want you to understand me, to be the first to say, how can I understand you? Let me hear you. I don't do it perfectly, thankfully, Kathy. Ladies, this does not get you off the hook. You also have a responsibility to do these same kind of things. But as the head of my household, and gentlemen, as the heads of our household, we have a responsibility to submit our desires and our right to be right and our desire to be in control to what is the best thing for my family. How can I serve sacrificially as a servant? I'm moving quickly through this. We've talked about this at other times, so I'm just going to keep going. He then moves from husbands and wives, and he says a whole lot more there, mainly to the husband, not to the wife. We've already read everything he said to the wife. We've read just a little bit of what he says to the husband, so that might be a fun thing for you to have a conversation about later. He then moves on to children and parents, particularly children and their fathers. And he says in chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And goes on. Now, would this have been revolutionary in this culture, to ask children to submit and respect their parents? No, it's expected. What is revolutionary and progressive is this. He then turns to the, to the fathers. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In other words, in the same way that you're asking your children to show you respect, you show them respect. And you don't just show them all the ways they're screwing up. You don't just harp on all of their imperfections. You also speak life. You also train up. Sometimes that means discipline because if we don't discipline our children, we don't love our children. But you do so lovingly and redemptively, not simply punitively. And I will confess, with my son in here right now, I have not done a perfect job of this. There have been times where I have exasperated Ethan. And I'm sorry about it, buddy, because I love you. And it breaks my heart. And thankfully, you got a mom who is very good at reminding me of that. And I, and I desire to continue to move back towards you and <laughs> Uh, and speak life, but I have not done it perfectly. And in the same way, as a parent, I can't simply say, you're the child, I'm the parent, so submit. I'm right, you're wrong, because I'm bigger, and I can yell louder. That does not give you a right. As the parents, we have a responsibility to model the kind of lifestyle, the kind of interpersonal dynamics that we long to see in our own families. Make sense? Moving on. He then turns to slaves and slave owners. This is not a euphemism for boss and employee. This is slaves and slave owners, which is part and parcel of what this society that he's writing into deals with. And he says, slaves, submit to your masters, not just when their eye is on you, not just when they're around, but even when they're not. Work for them as if you were working for the Lord. That's how you submit. And by the way, bosses, you're not off the hook. And that wouldn't have been revolutionary in any way, shape, or form, except for the heart behind it. Submit to them like you're submitting to Christ. That is a different motivation than do it so you don't get beaten. But then he looks to the masters and he says, and you show your slaves respect because they're your brothers and they're your sisters. That's revolutionary. 
because he's suddenly elevating what society would call property to be on par with, in value, the people who consider them their property. He's saying, your brothers and your sisters, you are no different in value to the Father. Do you begin to see how different verse 22 looks when you read it both within the literary context of the overarching context Uh, discussion that Paul is having, the through line, as well as the historical context into which he's writing. Because I would suggest that what he says in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21 and through, is radically progressive for that day and age. In many ways, we've looked at this as being kind of a, a bastion of this misogynistic mindset, and I would say it's just the opposite. It breaks the lid off of the patriarchal society and says, start treating one another as brothers and sisters with mutual respect, and this is how you can live as children of the light in the community in which you reside. So now we step back to third base. As we've gone, to, what is it saying? What did it mean to them? Now we get to ask, well, what is it saying to us? And I'm just going to go ahead and say it to myself. This is saying to me that I have a responsibility to submit my right to be right as the head of my household, as the father of my children, as as the lead pastor of this church. I have a responsibility to ask, how can I sacrificially submit my best interest to the best interest of all that I'm leading and all I'm caring for and all that I am doing life with? That doesn't mean that I just sacrifice my, my own life and my own family on the altar of ministry. It doesn't mean that I'm, I never get anything that I want. It simply means how can I care for their needs? How can I serve them? How can I model? How can I love my wife as Christ loved the church? How do I love and train my children up in the way they should go with love and encouragement rather than belittling and, and constantly harping on their imperfections? And how do I own it? when I screw up? And how do I lead my staff as a servant? Because the higher you go, it's not the more people you have that will have to do your bidding. The higher you go, the more people you are responsible to care for and, and serve. Now, let me ask this question. Does this passage speak to somebody even if they're not married, even if they have no children, even if you are in a job where you don't have a single person that reports to you, does this passage still speak to you? You better believe it. Yes. <laughs> Love you, dude. Yes. Because all of us are called to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence to Christ. It's just going to look different in your particular context. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. In what way is the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this is for you? That's where you have to sit with Scripture. This is where it's living and active. It's not just some dry, dusty rule book. This is not something that the DMV of of Jesus produced. This is not a rule book that you just go, do this, don't do that, done. This is a living and active way that our Father begins to shape our hearts to reflect His heart. 
This is less about beating other people into submission, and it's much more about using it as sandpaper to allow God to begin to shape our hearts and remove the calluses and make us a better reflection of his heart to people around us so that our lives become perhaps the scripture that they read. And when they see the way that we love, they'll be curious about why, and then it'll give us an opportunity to share why we have such joy in the midst of so much brokenness, why we treat people differently than the rest of the world does, why we're willing to take a Saturday and go and serve as opposed to hiring people to come and take care of our needs. So does it make sense how you don't want to just start by asking, what does this mean to me? Instead, you say, hey, what does it mean? How would they have understood it? And then you say, now what does this mean to me in light of that? Make sense? Okay, so I'm going to give you some homework. You can do this either as a family. You can do this as an individual. If you're part of a life group, I am asking you guys to do this this week, all of the life groups. I want you to run the bases with one of, I would suggest, the most misused and misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Yes, shower your blessing upon us, Father. Make us wealthy. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you, and I'm sorry to go get all like preachy on you for a second there, but... What I would like you to do is I would like you, either as a family or in a life group, to read that passage within its literary and its historical context. The reason I love that passage is within that, and I've given you some instructions there, pretty much all of the historical context you need is contained within that section. So you don't have to go searching other books and things to find it. Do that. Now, some of you are saying, this is great, but I want more. I want to go deeper on this. Awesome. If that's the case, there's two books I would recommend. Book number one is the one that has really shaped my understanding of this whole idea of scriptural interpretation. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And Pete, I'm going to invite you to come forward right now. Uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart. It is a fabulous, very easily accessible book that kind of guides you through this whole process. Secondly, If you go, that's good, and it's going to talk about the literary genres and kind of explain to you how you read an epistle, which is one of the letters, differently than you would read um, one of the Gospels, differently than you would read uh, one of the Old Testament prophets. Secondly, some of you say, well, how about a particular book? Because that's more of a general thing. They then followed up with another book called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. So if you're like, hey, I really want to understand the historical context behind Isaiah specifically or behind Jeremiah specifically, this book takes each one and kind of gives you that historical background. Now, some of you go, well, I have the study Bible and there's an introduction. That is a fabulous place to start getting historical context because that's what it's for. It introduces you to the book as a whole or the letter as a whole before you start reading it gives you that foundation for understanding how the original audience would have understood it. So those are some tools that are out there. But, um, man, I know this is drinking from the fire hose. My, my third through fifth graders, so proud of you for sticking with us. I hope that you will do your homework this week because we're going to talk about it next week. We're not done with this conversation of how to faithfully approach God's word. I'm looking forward to that because there's some things that I've learned just in the last week that I can't wait to share with you. So let's pray, and then we're going to go into a time of response. Um, and, and we are also going to take an offering. And so if you're visiting here, 
please do not feel like you need to throw any money into it, but we would love to know you're here. I would love to get your information so we can kind of let you know more about what our church is about. If you are visiting here, there's a book at the front of the, the called um, Case for Faith. It's a fabulous book. That is our gift to you as thanks for being here. The only thing I ask is that you let us know that you were here. Um, also, if you have prayer requests or anything, you can drop that in the offering basket. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it's trustworthy. I thank you that it's not just some dusty thing that we leave on our bedstand, and, and it's just full of do's and don'ts. I thank you that it's living and active, and it continues to speak to us today. And we long to faithfully study it. We long to faithfully allow it to begin to shape us into your image so that we can represent you better. God, I know there's been a lot thrown at them. I pray, Father, that you would help us to make sense of this and that it would kind of find uh, purchase in the soil of our hearts and begin to take root so that as we approach your word, it would actually enliven and open up your word in ways that uh, it hasn't felt like in a long time. Thank you that you are not silent. Thank you that you are not distant. Thank you that you love us intimately and that you meet us in the most unexpected places. And I thank you that in your word, it was written thousands of years ago, it continues to speak into our lives today. We give you our lives and say, help yourself to us.